I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. This is the first Sunday that I have preached here since Mount Horeb purchased its freedom from the United Methodist Church. <laughs> as, as my favorite Baptist minister used to say, it's better to be separated by truth than united in error. And this year of 2023 is witnessing the birth of a great new Methodist movement. And frankly, for years, I have prayed that the Lord would let me live long enough to see this day. I thank God to be part of a church like Mount Horeb that has taken the lead in this new Methodist movement in South Carolina. I thank God to be part of a church that does not argue about matters that the Bible has already decided. I thank God to be part of a church that seeks to obey Holy Scripture rather than to revise it or distort it or deny it. I thank God to be part of a church that glories in the cross rather than ridicules it, as was seen recently outside Dodgers Stadium in Los Angeles. Our church council has recommended that we join the Global Methodist Church, and we will vote on that proposal next Sunday. The Global Methodist Church is not perfect because it's composed of imperfect people like us, and Satan will attack the Global Methodist Church ferociously because he hates any church that publishes gospel truth without apology. Our confidence will not be in our intellect or our abilities or our money. Our confidence will be in the Lord Jesus Christ who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I believe that our founder, John Wesley, would be proud of the Global Methodist Church. Wesley said, give me 100 preachers, lay or clergy, who fear nothing but sin and who desire nothing but God, and they will shake the very gates of hell and set up the kingdom of God upon the earth. I pray that that will be our guiding vision. Uh, brothers and sisters, we are the founding mothers and fathers of a great new Methodist movement in South Carolina. And so let me ask you, do you believe that next Sunday will be a great day for our church? Amen. Our scripture for today comes from Paul's, excuse me, comes from the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, Matthew's Gospel, just two verses, Matthew 5, 14 through 16. And if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. You are the light of the world, Jesus said. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. The town of Wakanda, Illinois is a small town, population about 7,000. And for some 45 years, it had been the custom in Wakanda during the Christmas season to put a lighted cross on each of the two water towers. But then a couple of years ago, the city council received a complaint threatening a lawsuit if those lighted crosses were not taken down. They claimed that it was a violation of the separation of church and state. Well, the church council debated it. They didn't want to get involved into an expensive litigation process. So with much regret, they took down the lighted crosses. But then the citizens of Wakanda took the matter into their own hands. Almost all of the citizens decided to triple the number of lighted ornaments on their lawns all over town. There were lighted crosses and lighted trees and lighted manger scenes everywhere, several miles away out on the interstate at night. You could see Wakanda in the distance. The town was ablaze because the people had decided to light up the place for Jesus Christ. In our scripture for the morning, Jesus is urging us to turn on a light, though a different kind of light. Here again, these two verses of our scripture of the morning. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now I want you to think for a moment, take yourself back to the first century Palestine. Think about how the citizens of Palestine would have heard Jesus' words. Remember this, most of the houses there were rather dark because most houses had only one window and it was about 18 inches across. So lamps were necessary and the typical lamp was a bowl of olive oil with a wick floating in it. And it was kept burning at all times. Remember this, this was the age before matches, so it was kind of hard to light a lamp. And once you got it lit, you keep it going because olive oil was plentiful. And so these uh, lamps in each house were kept going continually. Now, if the family was asleep or away from home, an earthen bowl was put over the lamp to keep anything from catching on fire. But when the family was at home and awake, that lamp was put up on a stand so that it could give light to everything in the room. 
So the question then comes to us. What would it mean for us today to turn on the light of Christ? First, I want to suggest that we must reflect the light of Christ in our lifestyle. You see, our light is not like the sun. It's more like the moon. It's a reflected light. It comes from the Christ Spirit who is living within us. And we're supposed to shine so that other people can see that light and praise Almighty God who illuminates us. We don't want people to look at us and say, uh, oh, what a, what a devout fellow he is, or what a lovely lady she is. No, no, no. We want them to look at us and say, I see a reflection of Jesus in that person. I can tell that he or she has been with Jesus. Jesus calls us to be like a lamp giving light to the entire room. That means that people will see us before they hear us. You see, before people are willing to hear us say a word, they're going to check us out to see if we have some credibility, if there's anything worthy about us that makes us worth listening to. People will see us and evaluate us before they listen to us. So, what should people see in us Christians? First, obviously, they ought to see honesty and integrity. Uh, you know, if Satan can lure one of us Christians, especially a preacher, into telling lies or engaging in some sexual sin, Satan will hang a sign around our necks reading hypocrite and publish it on Twitter and Facebook for all the world to see. Friends, people are watching us continually, just evaluating what we're like. And one of the first things they ought to be able to see is honesty and integrity. Second thing they ought to see is joy. If Christ lives in our hearts, peace and joy from Him ought to show on our faces. My old friend Adrian Rogers used to say, don't go around looking like the advance agent for the undertaker. Even in a crisis, we Christians should be joyful. Jesus said, in fact, in this world you will have trouble. We know that's true. But then he added, take heart. I have overcome the world. People ought to see joy in us. After the early service today, a lady came up to me and gave me one of these cards. It says, smile, Jesus loves you. It's a wonderful card. On the inside, it has the uh, path to salvation, what one must believe. And then on the back, it has the prayer that turns a sinner into a forgiven Christian. And she told me she was going to leave lots of extra on the worship table. So if you want to pick up one, please do. Smile. Jesus loves you. A third thing that Christians ought to see in us is love, especially for the least, the lost, the lonely, and the hurting. And that word love, agape, as I've shared with you before, it means to seek what is truly best for every other person. And our love for others is just an overflow from the love of God that has filled us through Christ Jesus. When we've got that inside, it's going to overflow. 
And Jesus said, whatever you do for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you do for me. And the agape love that fills us should involve us in the struggle for social justice. When we Christians oppose racism and support more educational opportunities for poor children, and when we're trying to improve the, just, the juvenile justice system in South Carolina, and when we're building houses for Habitat for Humanity, when we're doing these kinds of things, it makes our evangelistic ministry much more credible. And our founder, John Wesley, gave us a great example. When he was over 80 years old, he spent five consecutive days walking the streets of London midwinter, ankle-deep snow, going door-to-door -door soliciting contributions so that he could purchase clothes for the poor. And he raised over $1,000. So, to turn on the lights for Christ in our lifestyle means first to reflect the light of Christ by demonstrating honesty, integrity, joy, and love. That brings me to the second mandate for turning on the lights for Christ's sake. Second mandate, we must tell others the good news of Christ. We must tell others the good news of Christ. There's a popular saying out there that's, that goes like this, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Well, that statement is misleading because words are always necessary. If you're a Christian today, it's because somebody led you to Christ. And I feel sure they used words. And if you have truly found new life in Christ, your gratitude will just compel you to share what he has revealed to you. And think about this. There are people within your range of contacts who may never hear the gospel unless they hear it from you. John Wesley reminded us of our number one task when he said, you have nothing to do but save souls. Now, Wesley didn't mean that literally because he did a lot of other things. He founded credit unions and medical clinics and orphanages. What he meant was your number one priority task is to save souls or to help the Lord Jesus save souls. Now, a good way to begin an evangelistic conversation is by asking a question. And we've got good example of that in Acts chapter 8. Philip the evangelist, God sent him to a particular road one day to meet an Ethiopian official who had been to Jerusalem to worship and he was headed home riding in his chariot. And he must have been rather wealthy because he had bought a, a scroll of Isaiah the prophet. They were not cheap. And he was riding along reading Isaiah chapter 53. And uh, Philip walked up beside the chariot and he didn't say, stop right there, brother. I'm going to lay the gospel on you. No. He said, do you understand what you're reading? He asked a question. And the Ethiopian said, no, how can I understand unless somebody explains it to me? Come up here in the chariot. And that's what Philip did. And as they rode along, Philip shared the gospel with this Ethiopian. 
And when they came to some water, the Ethiopian said, why can't I be baptized here? And so he was baptized right there. And then that spiritually reborn Ethiopian continued his way home. And what did he do after he got home? He planted a church. Your natural mission field is your circle of family, friends, relatives, acquaintances. And we should always be trying to enlarge that circle. People with whom you have credibility. Now, once someone is at least an acquaintance of yours and you are not sure of their relationship with Christ, you could start with several questions like, may I ask you a personal question? How are you really getting along? I didn't say, how are you? Because you know what the answer to that will be. Oh, good. How are you? Uh-uh. How are you really getting along? And if the answer to those questions is opens a door, you could follow it by asking another question. How are you and the Lord getting along? You see, asking questions is both respectful and illuminating. And then when it's our turn to talk, we ought to be able to answer two questions in three minutes or less. No, 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 20. 20 is great for the church, you can, but, but people are too busy to hear your sermon. Um, you got three minutes. Three minutes in which to answer two questions. First, how and when did you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Secondly, what difference is he making in your life? Three minutes, and you ought to write it out. Not, not so to memorize the whole thing, just memorize the key points. And then, every day, as part of your daily prayer, say, Lord, please give me an opportunity today to share that testimony you have helped me develop, and don't let me miss the opportunity when you present it. Now, recently I learned some bad news. A poll taken in America in the year 2020, just a few years ago, revealed that the percentage of Americans claiming to be part of a religious congregation has dropped to 47%. It's dropped 20% in the past 20 years. This means that a majority of Americans are not related to any religious congregation. But now here's the good news. There are approximately 200,000 gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches in America. 200,000. Now think about this. If each one of those churches won just two converts to Christ each week, you know what the annual total would be? 20 million 20 million new believers for Christ would be the annual result of every one of those 200,000 churches just winning two per week. Now, I'm not talking about stealing sheep from the Baptist or the Presbyterians. I'm talking about new believers. America's population today is about 332 million. Adding 20 million new believers 
each year would not only send an additional 20 million souls to heaven, I believe it might change our culture. I believe it might open the door to a national revival and how we need it. If we were able, with God's help, to win 20 million new believers a year, here are some of the things that might happen. For one thing, Hollywood and TV might be forced to raise the quality of their programming. Uh, abortion clinics might stop making money. Some would go bankrupt. Drug abuse would plummet. God's name would be profaned a whole lot less on television. And racial reconciliation would become so natural, so much easier. And you know what? Even Walgreens and CVS stores might be able to unlock some of their counters in order to sell their products. Now, some of you might say, oh, Brother Bill, you're mighty idealistic. Maybe so. But how idealistic was Jesus when he told, he ordered this ragtag bunch of 120 half-committed followers and said, go and make the uh, disciples of all nations. Now, that was idealism. It all begins when one Christian, like you or me, dares to write down his or her personal testimony then commits the key points to memory, and then each day he or she prays, Lord, send me an opportunity to share the gospel today. And when you and I grab that opportunity, we may create a bridge over which the living Christ walks into the heart of somebody and saves his eternal soul. That brings me to the third mandate, if we would become the light of the world. We must plant churches. We must plant churches. In this year of 2023, we are privileged to be part of a Methodist revolution similar to the one that happened in the 18th century under John Wesley with the very first Methodist. We believe that God has inspired the birth of the global Methodist church so that Methodist can recover full trust in the gospel and in the Holy Bible. We believe that there are millions of Americans who don't want to argue about the Bible. They want to obey it. They want a gospel that will unite classes and races, not divide them. And I believe there are millions of Americans who want to hear a clear answer to a question that was posed by a jailer in the city of Philippi who ask, what must I do to be saved? Now, on next Sunday, we're going to vote on whether or not to endorse a recommendation of our church council that we become part of the global Methodist church. And if we endorse that recommendation, we are going to have a huge, huge mission field. It stretches across the Midlands and beyond. And remember the words of our Methodist founder, the world is my parish. I want you to think about this. This excites me. Well, it saddens at first and then excites me. There is not a single global Methodist church within the city limits of Columbia. Just imagine if Mount Horeb were to plant a daughter church right in the middle of Columbia. 
it would attract hundreds of spiritually hungry Methodists and others. And you know what? It would attract so many that pretty soon we would have to plant other daughter churches. And some of you may become founding mothers or fathers of those daughter churches coming out of Mount Horeb. What a privilege that would be. What a challenge it would be. And Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send more workers into his harvest field. Let me mention Philip the evangelist one more time. After preaching and converting old, that old Ethiopian, the Bible says that he appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Now, you know that in each of those towns where Philip preached the gospel in one convert, he didn't say to them, now you brothers and sisters, every Sunday get on your donkeys and ride all those miles to Jerusalem so you can worship. Oh no, he planted churches right there in their town where they could worship and where they could serve. That's our responsibility too. We have a unique opportunity in this vital moment in Methodist history to plant biblically faithful evangelistic Methodist churches all over South Carolina. The most important truth I know is that Jesus Christ satisfies and only the cross can save. Jesus Christ has made a huge difference in my life. There is joy in my soul so deep that it had to come from God Almighty. I am more certain that I have been forgiven than I am sure that summer is hot in South Carolina. And when I reach the doors of eternity, nobody is going to pull my record to see if I'm good enough to get in. I'm not. But the gatekeeper will find my name in the book of life and say, let him in. His sin was nailed to the cross of Christ and Jesus sponsors him. Let him in, let him in. But then the gatekeeper might ask, Brother Bill, did you bring anybody with you? Somebody turned on the light of Christ for you, but did you turn on the light for anybody else? In closing, let me share an experience of the renowned preacher, Halford Lucock. Uh, one year before, shortly before Christmas, he asked his two young granddaughters what they wanted for Christmas. And they said, we want a world. Well, he had heard of asking for the moon before, but he had never heard of asking for a world. And so he consulted his daughter, who was there, the mother of these two young girls, uh, what in the world they were talking about. And she said, oh, they want a globe on a stand that'll turn so they can locate all the countries of the world. Dr. Lukacs said, I can fix that. So he went to the store bought a globe, had it packaged, put under the tree. And on Christmas morning, they opened it up, and he could tell they were a little bit disappointed. And so he asked them, what's wrong? And they said, uh, we wanted a, a lighted world. He said, I think I can fix that. So he took the globe back to the store and traded it in for one that had a light inside. It was an illuminated globe. 
And when he brought it to the girls, they were thrilled. He told a friend later about that experience, and he said, I learned something. A lighted world costs a whole lot more. <laughs> it sure does. And when you and I are determined to light up the world for Christ, it's going to cost more in terms of time and energy and money. But think what it cost Christ on the cross. And so I'm reminded of an old hymn that asks and answers a momentous question. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No. There's a cross for everyone. And there's a cross for me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, you paid the price for our redemption, and the Holy Spirit has assured us that we are your adopted children. Help us spread the good news of our Savior and Lord far and wide. Make us bold, but humble. Remind us that we are like beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. Give us the courage to go public with our faith, but always with winsomeness and gentleness and respect. Never let the focus be on us. Keep it always on Jesus. Amen.